0: For Thursday of Holy Week, here is Jesus alone in the garden. Jesus, so Mark 14. And they, Jesus and his disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let me pray and we'll jump in. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that we can trust it. And we thank you that we can trust you and that you have shown us that. So we come to you now uh, from places of faith, from places of doubt, from places of courage, and places of struggle, and we pray that you would meet with us tonight through your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. So 50 years ago, in about two hours... Fifty years and two hours ago, Martin Luther King said this. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And I hope you know that he was killed the next day, 50 years ago tomorrow. Incredible, incredible words. And he, did somebody clue him in that there was an assassination attempt coming? I don't know. Maybe. We don't know that. But he, he, he's picked up what's going on and he knows he's probably going to die. And lo and behold, he does the very next day. And we have a lot of different accounts of great men like Martin Luther King who were facing death. And they knew that it was coming. And these great heroes uh, who go into it. Um, Socrates is one. They said that Socrates drank the hemlock. You know that story? It said he did it so fearlessly and nobly. Even ironically, just drank the poison knowing he was going to die. So most of the hero stories, the hero is sort of stoic like that. Like he knows what's coming and he faces it with a bold face. And he's ready, cool, calm, and in charge. Or, and Martin Luther King is sort of in the middle. He's like, I'm not worried, I'm okay. But there's a sense of boldness and bravery in what he's saying. Um, One example of that is uh, there's Hugh Latimer and his friend Ridley, uh, we're going to be uh, put to death. This is around uh, the, the sort of Reformation period in England. And Hugh Latimer said this to his friend Ridley before they were set on fire uh, and martyred. He says, be of good comfort, Master Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. It's like we're going to die, but we're going to light a candle. We're going we're to shine the light. We're going to be bold. We're going to be brazen. So there's sort of this stoic approach or this bold and brave courage going into the face of death. But here in this passage, Jesus, there's definitely some bravery uh, deep in it. He was certainly brave, but Jesus, who Mark has been proposing to us all along and trying to show us as the son of God himself, he's claimed deity for himself, he's transfigured on the mountain in front of Peter, James, and John, his closest three disciples, he is the God-man. But here in this story, it seems that he's kind of coming apart at the seams. Did you notice this? He's falling apart. He's undone. He's not stoic and he's not brazen. So what is going on? What is so intense about this hour in the Garden of Gethsemane? What must he be facing for this to be so strong? We're going to look at three things uh, that Jesus is facing. The first thing he's facing is his enemy. And this is where in many ways he shows great bravery. He's faced with his enemy. His enemy, his betrayer. Verse 42 says... Jesus says, after finding the disciples asleep, rise, let us be going, see, my betrayer is at hand. And in the next verse, Judas, one of his disciples, and a group of Roman soldiers arrive, armed with clubs and swords, so that they can take Jesus away to be killed. They are his enemies. They are his foes. They are there to kill him. And and Judas, who was among the 12, is the one who betrayed Jesus. He told the chief priests, the scribes and the Romans, where Jesus was. And Jesus says, rise, let us be going. And he's not saying, rise, let's, let's run away. Here they come, like they're coming. He goes forward to face them. He walks right into their clubs. Let's go, let's do this, let's roll. Here he comes, and here I am. So he faced his betrayer, his enemy, but he doesn't just face Judas, the betrayer, or the enemy. He faces the ultimate enemy, the ultimate betrayer. Um, Judas did not act alone. He conspired with these other men. But the Gospel of John tells us that, um, this is from John chapter 12, it says, or 13, during supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And it goes on to tell us, in verse 27, that after Judas leaves that last supper, it says that Satan entered him. So when Jesus says, my betrayer is at hand, he's not just talking about Judas. He's talking about this cosmic force of evil, which the Bible often calls the Satan or Satan, as we say in English. This evil presence. He's in the midst of facing death, but it's not just facing death. He's facing this cosmic spiritual battle here in the garden. Colossians 2 says this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities meaning the spiritual authorities of this world, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. This is what God has done, that there is a spiritual battle taking place. Um, if you're here tonight and you're a skeptic, I just mentioned Satan. Is this like actual f- spiritual reality thing? Let's get coffee and talk about that. It's not what the sermon's about, but I'd love to talk to you about it because I know that it's weird. But notice where this happens. So he's facing Judas, who's inhabited, the Bible tells us, by Satan himself, who's coming in to destroy Jesus. And notice where Jesus is. Jesus is in a garden. And he's facing Satan, which should remind us immediately of the very beginning of the Bible, when Adam and Eve are in the garden, and they are tempted and deceived by the serpent, the evil one, the ultimate betrayer. And though they are deceived, and they fall, and they sin, they disobey God, this promise is given that one day an offspring of Eve will come and will crush the head of the serpent. But the serpent will strike his heel will strike a death blow against him. And here Jesus is in a garden. And he says, here he is. He's at hand. That death blow, that strike of the heel is happening. It's like the snake has reared its head back. If you saw the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ that came out, uh, about 15 years ago, and everybody thought it was going like, to change the world, because movies do that. It didn't change the world, but uh, it's an interesting film. But There's this thing where people were like, oh, it's going to be exactly historically accurate, and it wasn't at all. But um, one of the historical inaccuracies, but was theologically accurate, is there in the garden, Jesus is praying. And it's cool, he's actually, the actor's actually praying in Aramaic, which Jesus would have spoken. And then as he's walking through the garden, there's this snake coming along, and he goes, Zoom! and steps on the head of the snake. It's the best part of the movie. It's so cool. Um, he really stepped on his head the next day, but whatever. It was super cool. Um, and Jesus sees the betrayer coming, and he's ready. He's lifted his foot to crush his head. But also knowing that his heel will be struck with the venom and that he will fall and die. Jesus faces his enemy. He faces the betrayer. He faces our foes. Quick application. What would it mean for you as you fight with different issues, whether it be like a temptation of something that's wrong that you want to do, but you know that you shouldn't? or just the oppression that you feel of the world, or this, this sense of being alone in a garden, if you knew that Jesus went ahead of you and fought that battle and was able to look at that enemy and say, I'm going for it. Behold, my betrayer is at hand. Come on, let's go. Let's roll. Let's walk right into it. That Jesus is our champion. That he is the one who came to represent us and face our foes for us. But there's even more going on. He's facing this cosmic spiritual enemy. He faced his enemy, uh, but he also faced his friends. He faced his, his friends, verse 32. He said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Well, we see several things about Jesus here. First, we see his humanity. We see that Jesus, though Mark's been showing us all along, is, is, is God. He is also fully human. He is a, as the incarnate God, he's a limited man who has real human emotions. Look at the language. He's he's greatly distressed and troubled. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He's saying, I'm so sad, I could die. Have you ever felt that way? I hope you haven't, (laughs) but a lot of you have. I'm sorrowful to the point of death. Jesus enters into our world, and he experiences the whole gamut of human emotions, even the worst possible ones. And then look at... If I can use this word about Jesus, He's in need. He took with Him Peter and James and John, and He says, "Stay awake and pray with me." What is He saying? Like this is a, this is a critical moment. This is very hard. I need to pray, and I need you three to come closer, come with me. The other, the rest of the twelve, of you stay over here. But these three, come close with me, sit and watch and pray with me. Don't leave me alone. I need you to be with me. I need you to pray for me. And He's honest. He's honest about what's going on. He doesn't put the stoic mask on. This isn't, I'm fine, just give me a second. just, Just let me compose myself really quick, and then we can talk. I'm sorrowful, even to the point of death. Stay awake and pray with me. Again, compare it with Adam. Adam in the Garden of Eden, he hides from God. He blames Eve and God for what he just did, and he lies to them and to himself about what's going on. But Jesus flings himself wide open before God. He runs towards God in the midst of his pain. He calls his friends. He doesn't hide from them either. He he invites them in to community with himself, and he tells them and he tells God exactly what is going on with him at that moment. He tells the truth about his struggle and about his pain, which is an interesting model for us about the way that we pray, but we don't need to hide when we talk to God. We don't have to say, like, okay, what a faithful Christian is supposed to say right now is this, and faithful Christians aren't supposed to worry we're not supposed to be stressed. We're not supposed to be anxious about anything, so we're going to say that we're not. We're going to lie to God because that'll work. Because that's all, that always works. Um, that's not what Jesus does. And also when we say, sometimes like even songs that we sing sometimes can have this sense of like, you know what? All I need is Jesus. As long as I have a relationship with God, everything else is going to be fine. Well, that wasn't true for Jesus. He had a relationship with his father, and yet he still said, Peter, James, John, be with me. Here's what's going on with me. Pray with me. I need you to be near me. But then his friends let him down. Uh, They failed him. Verse 37. He came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. I love that. They didn't know what to say. And he came the third time, and he said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So these three, Peter, James, and John, they were the ones that were on the mountain of transfiguration several chapters ago where they saw Jesus, if you remember the story, he lights up like a candle in front of them, and Moses and Elijah, the prophets, and the first five books of the Old Testament, representing, the, authenticating Jesus as the spokesperson for God, and a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my son, listen to him. They had seen him revealed in all of his glory. They were in the inner circle of Jesus. Can you imagine? Like Jesus loves everybody, but did you know he kind of had an inner circle? the 12 and then the 3, that he was very, very close with because he was a man. He was a person. He had close friends. They were his best friends. (coughs) And when he needed them most, they let him down completely. They couldn't even stay awake. Have you ever been let down by your friends or by a family member? Like the person that you were most dependent on when you needed them the most and they were like, yeah, we're not doing that. I can't do it. I can't be there. And you can hear the disappointment in his voice. Simon, are you asleep? Um, Every week I look at different commentaries on the Bible to kind of put these things together. Every single commentary on verse 37 used the word disappointment to describe Jesus' reaction. And here's what's really interesting. I've mentioned this before as we've been going through Mark. Um, Matthew and Luke both tell this same story, and they make the statement of Jesus of, are you asleep? He sang it to all of them. But we know from church history that Peter was the source of Mark, that Mark and Peter worked together, and some even say that that essentially Peter dictated the book of Mark to Mark, and Mark wrote it down. That could be true, or it could just be that Mark had taken on all the teaching that Peter had given him and recorded it in this book. So the other two, he says it to all of them. But in Peter's version of the story, he says it to Peter. Simon, are you asleep could you not stay awake one hour with me? See, Peter puts a direct address to himself. Not just they fell asleep, or not even just we fell asleep. Peter tells us, I fell asleep on Jesus when he needed me the most. Do you know how that feels? To be let down by your friends, we know what that's like. But to look at yourself and realize, I've let them down, I've failed. Have you seen your failure? Have you seen your frailty, your inability? Because it says, I'm going to be too hard on these three. It says that their eyes were heavy. Has that ever happened to you where you've kind of been staying up, you're trying to pull the all-nighter, and your eyes are just like weighing down, and you're trying to focus, but you're like, I just can't, I can't do this anymore. Luke tells us that they were overcome with grief, that they were just exhausted, and they didn't really understand. You used to have been telling them kind of what was happening, but they didn't really get what was happening, and they just couldn't do it. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, and they fell asleep. Have you come to grips with your weakness in the way that Peter is doing for us here? To acknowledge, I cannot do it all. I cannot be everything for everyone. I couldn't even stay awake for an hour for the Lord of the universe. Have you come to grips with that? And Peter is modeling for us through the Gospel of Mark of how to do that well. Of how to honestly admit that we fall short, that we can't quite do it. That in his hour of need, his closest three let him down. And he was left alone. And what's so interesting about the way that God works is that even that, even his closest three totally letting him down in that moment, even when he's asking and commanding them to do something different, even that was part of God's plan. It kind of had to happen because Jesus ultimately had to be left alone in order to do what he came to do. Because at the end of the day, at the end of this prayer, no matter what, the disciples were not really going to be able to help Jesus out of this. It wasn't something that they could really do with him. They were no help because of the last thing that Jesus is facing that makes this so intense where he's not being stoic and he's not being brazen and bold. He faced his enemy and he faced his friends, but most importantly, he faced his own father. He faced his father here in the garden. Verse 35, And going a little farther into the garden, he fell on the ground, And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. This idea in Christianity, this notion of the Trinity, you've probably heard of it, even if you haven't grown up in the faith. This idea that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one, fully God together And yet three distinct persons in perfect, eternal unity and joy and love that they have been celebrating in all of their glory for all of eternity forever. And yet here is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, talking to the first person of the Trinity, the Father, and saying, everything is possible for you. Please take this away from me. Let this hour be over. Take this cup out of my hands. I don't want to drink it. And later on the cross, he'll cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This tremendous mystery that happens in the scripture with this theology of the Trinity. And yet somehow on the cross, the father and the son are torn apart from one another. We're the, we're, we sing in one of our songs, the father turns his face away, that God has turned his back on his son and the wrath of God is falling on him. And that is beginning here in the garden. It's starting here. He says, take this cup away. Do you ever feel like God's not listening to your prayers? Like you're asking for something that's good, that you should want, that's a positive thing, but the answer is still no? Just a sidebar here. Let that encourage you that Jesus got a no. (laughs) He got a no from his father over this. What's the answer? The answer is just silence. And he does it three times. Notice he comes back. He comes back. So why is Jesus so desperate for another way? And why does the answer have to be no? This idea of take this cup from me, let this hour pass, this idea of the cup. In the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, there's this idea of God's, this cup that's representation of God's wrath. And in Isaiah, it talks about this cup being drunk by the nations who are enemies of God and his wrath being poured out of, out of them. A cup of wrath and a cup of staggering being poured out on God's enemies. Psalm 75 says this, for in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed Um, a few years ago some of you probably remember uh, Jenny Mackey who was our amazing intern who who got married last year and abandoned us for her (laughs) husband Uh, and uh, Don and I had her over we were doing a little Christmas celebration and she brought us this like cool like spiced wine that you heat it's like cider but you heat it and it it was so good I never had like hot spiced wine which I would think would be terrible but it was amazing so it's a Christmas tradition for us now when you're 21 get some it's really good um but, but that was not an uncommon practice to take wine and heat it up and mix spices and things in it in that sense of a foaming cup of wine well mixed and it's like incredibly aromatic. And, and God would use that as a picture for his wrath, for his judgment on sin. Foaming wine well mixed and he pours it out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. It's this idea of God's ju- cosmic justice being brought about on us when we rebel against him and refuse to repent. And that cup in the Old Testament that's poured out on these heinous nations, I mean, if you can imagine some of the atrocities that were committed, and they are still committed to this day of just incredible wickedness of child sacrifice and abuse and rape and, and everything else that's, that's been going on and God is saying, I'm not just going to turn the other way. This is going to be punished. My wrath will come on this. you've got questions, you can text about that or let's get coffee. That's a crazy subject. Again, not what we're going to spend the whole sermon on, but I recognize that like, wait, is this a fire and brimstone sermon? Like what? My friend said it was cool. Uh, why am I... But there's this idea in the Bible that God is a God of justice. Uh, And that justice is going to be poured out and it's pictured as a cup, a cup of wrath will be poured out. And here Jesus is holding that same cup. And he's saying, take this cup from me because he's going to have to drink it down to the dregs. And that is why he's so distressed. That's why he's not stoic. That's why there's not a brazen sense of bravado as he's facing death. Because he's not just going to die. He's going to feel that separation from the father. He's going to feel, as it were, if you think about the, the notion in the scriptures of what Jesus actually does and accomplishes on the cross, it's not just his physical suffering. It's not just that he dies. There's this idea that if you took all the punishment that all of God's people's sins deserved and you squished it into concentrated form. I grew up cheap, drinking the cheap orange juice that like came in a can and it came out of the, fr- the freezer and you'd hold it upside down and it would like sit there and then th- slowly melt and then thunk down and you'd have to add water to make... The idea is that on the cross, Jesus is taking God's wrath in concentrate upon himself. He's taking the full thing so that the scripture tells us in the garden, he was actually sweating droplets of blood, sorrow to the point of death, because the smell of that foaming wine was unbearable for him. It's like, I know what's about to happen here. I know who you are, and I know what has to happen. If there's any other way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And the answer is no, because if Jesus doesn't drink that cup, then it gets poured out on his disciples who are right over there. And notice that juxtaposition of Jesus on his face, sweating blood, pleading with his father in a way that's theologically hard for us to even comprehend. And then he gets up after a while, wipes the blood off his face, and there they are asleep, back and forth. Stay awake and pray with me. Take this cup from me. Can't you stay awake for an hour? Take this cup for me. Really, guys? And it's as if in that moment in the garden like Adam, facing his enemy, facing the temptation, it's as if God the Father is waving that cup under his nose and saying, Jesus, are you really willing to do that for them? Your closest three, your best friends, and they can't even stay awake. You sure you want to drink this? Are you really willing? Will you take this cup for them? not my will but yours be done his answer was yes i will if this is the only way to save them who can't even stay awake for an hour with me if this is what i have to do then yes i will do it for them get up let's go here comes my betrayer the hour is upon us because of his love for his disciples because of his love for his father and his father's plan and because of his love for you because you and i are just like peter and james and john And if we had been in the garden that night, we'd do the exact same thing. We couldn't do it. And if the foaming cup of God's wrath didn't stop Jesus from going and dying for sleeping disciples, what is it about you that makes you think that he can't love you? Like often we have this thing like, I'm kind of unacceptable. Like, I'm unacceptable. Like even in our culture of like everybody's accepted no matter what, there's this deep down sense in us that the Bible calls shame. That we go, you know what? Yeah, but not me. I'm different. I don't, everybody else belongs here, but I don't belong here. And we feel that about school. If you feel it about William and Mary, uh, what about the presence of a holy God? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess that all of us have this little feeling like, yeah, I, hmm, nope, <laughs> not me. And so you see Jesus sniffing that cup and going, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. And if the wrath of God couldn't keep him away from you, what makes you think that your sin could? That's not my argument. That's from a guy called Jonathan Edwards who lived in America a long time ago. It was his logic on this passage. But I think he's right. That nothing could separate us from the love of God in Christ in the midst of all of this despair and agony and grief and pleading and suffering and fear and courage. All of that was for you. All in love for you. And so a second, we're going to sing, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. And there's this verse we're going to sing in a moment that says this. See him prostrate in the garden. On the ground your maker lies. On the bloody tree behold him, sinner. Will this not suffice? And what we're going to sing together here in a moment is saying, isn't this enough? Is Jesus not enough? Has he not done enough for you, that you would go to him and be embraced. So we'll sing that in a moment now, but first let me pray. Lord God, we thank you that you loved us to the end, that you loved us to the fullest, that you sent Christ uh, to face uh, the worst of beyond what we could even conceive or imagine, uh, and that he did so willingly in love for us and for you. we pray that we would respond in kind. We pray this in your name, amen. Please stand up and we'll sing.